welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 23rd, we're studying Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. In today's text, the author of Hebrews proclaims Jesus as our high priest, who serves as a minister in the heavenly sanctuary made by God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Sam Belts. Pastor Belts serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning, Tim. Thanks for having me again. Hey, let's talk about the context, the letter of Hebrews, anything we need to know to prepare to look at chapter 8. Yeah, so uh, one of the really nice things about the book of Hebrews as a whole, much like the Pauline epistles, is that it hangs together very tightly. And um, even, I think, almost even more tightly thematically than some of Paul's epistles. Um, depending on where you fall on whoever the author of Hebrews is, um, whoever he is has a really clear point that he is communicating to the Hebrew people who are converting to Christianity, who maybe have some concerns about the person of Jesus and his relation to the old Israelite traditions. How is Jesus fulfilling the old covenant? How is Jesus fulfilling the, the Torah? All these questions seem to sort of like be hanging over the entirety of the text, which you've probably already talked about with other with other uh, guys, other folks during the course of the study. But when we start getting into the later chapters, when uh, I, I think it was Barnabas that wrote uh, Hebrews, okay. but whoever it is, right? Um, when they start getting into the later chapters, you he really starts hammering on the priestly office and the priestly function, both earthly and heavenly, of the person Jesus Christ, of, of the Messiah, of his of how he fulfills the um, the office of priest, which was instituted by God and authorized by God in the Old Testament, in the temple, in the tabernacle, for the benefit of the people to be connected to their God, and how Jesus is now the fulfillment of all of that, you know, front-loaded sort of imagery, right? So the writer of the Hebrews is going to talk in this section in chapter eight and talks in other places, sort of about this. Um, uh, allegorical connection or analogical connection or metaphorical connection, whatever sort of literary term you want to use about how the things of the old Testament were put in place to give us a type or uh, an image of what God was ultimately going to do in the person of Jesus. And, and here, right in seven and in eight, um, we have the, the priestly office being fulfilled, concretized in Jesus in his earthly ministry, but now even more, you know, divinely in his heavenly ministry, what he what he continues to do on behalf of the church, on behalf of his people in the heavenly realm. We get, again, I, I think the last time we were together, we made a lot of connections to the revelation too in, uh, in uh, our discussion. And now we have that same sort of uh, revelatory connection here in the writing to the Hebrews. Um, we have the priest though, rather than the lamb, right? So we have a little bit of a different imagery than the revelation, but we have this ongoing divine heavenly ministry that Jesus as the great high priest is enacting in the heavenly realm on behalf of his people. It's really, really beautiful imagery. Um, 
We'll talk about it too. You know, I generally tell people when we're writing the Hebrews, obviously Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews is for us, right? We're Christians, we're inheritors of this of this text, of this scripture. God wants us to read this, to know this, to trust this stuff. But the original, I hate using these sorts of modern uh, literary terms, but when you're reading the, the Hebrews, you really have to have a good working knowledge of Old Testament history and temple practice. You have to have a really working knowledge of the priestly orders. You have, to, you have to be very Levitical. You have to understand all of the things that God put in place in the Old Testament to really unpack the the letter to the Hebrews and its import, which which clearly points us to the fact that this letter was written to a group of Hebrew Christians who were clearly struggling with faith and fidelity to Jesus, if he was truly the Messiah, how how he fulfills all of these Old Testament types. And the writer of the Hebrews, again, I think Barnabas, is really trying to hammer this home for these people and proclaim the gospel to these people that there's no other, there's no other Messiah, no other man, no other priest, no other anything, no other sacrifice, nothing. It's only Christ. He fulfills it all. And he goes head over heels driving this to this group of people, uh, wherever they are, whoever they are, right? Obviously Hebrews, but, um, you know, again, we get to inherit this, right? Uh, by, by our baptisms, by our inclusion uh, into the church, by our now standing in reception of all the history of Israel uh, and the patriarchs and all of the, all of the sacrifices and the ceremonies and everything that have now reached their culmination as the writer of the Hebrews clearly, clearly is asserting in Jesus. Yeah. So is there anything in particular from the Old Testament that we really need to know for chapter 8 or just the, the priestly system in general or any particular texts or rites that are, are very important for this chapter? Well, um, we're obviously, so in chapter 8, you get this giant section from Jeremiah. Um, and so understanding, I think, uh, you know, obviously understanding the Levitical uh, the Levitical system, uh, it's set up in Exodus, uh, you know, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, sort of the, uh, I, I can't think of a, uh, you know, particular chapter and verse at this point in any of those right. texts, because they all, they all hang together. I mean, in chapter seven, when you're talking about Melchizedek, there's obvious connections to Genesis that you need to be able to have in hand from the early iterations of the faith that was passed on through uh, Abraham, and then into the time of the Exodus with uh, Moses, right? There's all these connections that you have to be able to make. Um, the difficulty with some of that stuff is that, uh, you know, when you're talking about Melchizedek in chapter seven, that kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, where's, where does this guy come from? Who is this Melchizedek guy? Where is his history and lineage? You all of a sudden get this discussion about him and, and his, and his priestly work on behalf of the, of these faithful people. And you're like, where, where's this, where, where's this scripture that we, you know, where, where's the genealogy of Melchizedek? And now, and now the writer of the Hebrews just brings him up again, right? Like there's clearly, uh, you know, this, this is a big, I think this is extremely mysterious. I think this, I think this points to why Lutherans are right about an open canon uh, against the Roman Catholics. There's clearly texts of scripture that exist that have been existent in the history of the world that have been existent in the history of Israel that we just don't have. We don't have access to this stuff. Right. I want to know about more about Melchizedek. I want to know more about where, how, whatever the trajectory of this people is or was like, where is where is the jar in a cave somewhere that has this stuff? Is this buried with Moses? Where is this stuff? Right. Um, and, and I think that's a really that uh, to a certain extent that gives me 
you know, Christians should be excited about the fact that we have these texts of scripture that are still out there and these mysteries that still exist. And we're waiting for God to continue to reveal this to us, right? You know, the ongoing revelation isn't necessarily that, you know, lightning bolts fall out of the sky from God's finger to somebody's head and we get a new revelation. Some new revelations are probably that there's, there are these old words of God that still exist in the, in this creation that we have yet to uncover that have yet to be revealed to us. And, um, you know, we're sort of waiting for this stuff, but Melchizedek is an interesting figure, but Melchizedek is in chapter eight as much, you know, we import, of course, that imagery into chapter eight because, uh, Barnabas, the writer of the Hebrews is still working with this motif, with this theme of the great high priest, but he, he's going to pivot heavily, uh, to the fulfillment of this Jeremiah passage, which is what he backends this whole thing into roll into chapter nine, right? Uh, so we move from heavily, heavily from the image of the priest, the order of Melchizedek, how Jesus is connected to this order and this priestly office. And then uh, the writer of uh, Hebrews is going to transition us into this fulfillment of the Jeremiah passage, which Jesus takes up, which is a huge section of Jeremiah. Uh, when we get into Jeremiah 31, if you're going to read that, that'd be an excellent you know, precursor for reading uh, what's actually going on here in the Hebrews and sort of the connection yeah. that the writer is making for us. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The thirty Jeremiah thirty-one is a huge part of this chapter. This chapter is almost half of a quote from, or almost half of the chapter is a quote yep. from Jeremiah thirty-one. There is some background from the what happens on the mounts on the mountain with Moses when he receives the instructions for the tabernacle. Right. That's mentioned specifically. But but as you said, it is a, a bit more familiar territory in this chapter for readers of the Old Testament than what we had in Melchizedek in the previous chapters. We've, we've got a little bit more of that familiar books of Moses, uh, some of the main things that come up when it comes to the, the priestly system, as we have them in the scriptures, uh, which are sufficient for our salvation as we have them. So let's take a look. Hebrews 8 beginning at verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's our text. That is Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 13. All right, so this is the point. The point in what we're saying, he starts in verse 1. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Here's the point, Pastor Belts. Help us to understand the point. Yeah, right. So um, whenever I read this section of Hebrews, and generally Hebrews uh, as, a, as a letter, it becomes excessively clear that whoever is writing this has some connection to the rhetorical devices that St. Paul employs. Um, because what, and again, I think it's Barnabas. So what, what Barnabas does here is he destroys the old covenant in relation to Jesus, right? And he, <laughs> I mean, so um, the issue with Jesus being the great high priest is that Jesus as the priest is the only one that can sort of ratify, institute, you know, authorize a covenant to be done, right? To, to be enacted, to be uh, consecrated, right? Moses enacted this long ago on the on Sinai with Israel back in the days when they came out of Egypt and they saw Sinai rocking and rolling. They didn't want to have anything to do with God. And, they, and Moses went up, Moses came down, Moses did as God commanded the people of Israel. They said they would listen to everything that God had done. And then, you know, here in the Jeremiah passage, we find out, well, they didn't, right? There's going to be a day when I institute this covenant and it's going to pass, you know, the old is going to pass away. The new will be here. The hearts of the people will be filled with fear, love, and trust. That's actual faith where it hasn't been before. Um, and so Jesus, uh, the point being, uh, unlike Melchizedek, who was just this earthly priest, now Jesus, who is greater than Melchizedek, comes in the order of Melchizedek, you might say according to the flesh, if we want to make that case. Uh, I don't know if you talked about that in chapter 7, but that could be something that you make the case of. Um, and uh, that Jesus now comes in the order of Melchizedek, or the office of Melchizedek as the great high priest, to enact this new covenant, right? To enact this thing. Uh, and he and his, uh, his authorization isn't like other, isn't an earthly authorization which is why Barnabas goes to the length of talking about how Jesus is the one enthroned in the heavenly kingdom in the majesty of the father's glory at his right hand, right? Uh, something I always teach my confirmation students when we get to the second article of the apostles creed is that Jesus is God's right hand man. That's the way, that's the way that the scriptures really clearly talk about Jesus. The revelation talks about Jesus this way. Hebrews talks about Jesus this way. Um, Paul in Acts and Paul in Romans and Paul in Galatians and Paul everywhere talks about Jesus this way, how Jesus is the one that God gave all authority in heaven and on earth to, to bring about the covenant that is not made or ratified by human hands, right? That is not made and ratified by the blood. You know, this is another major theme in Hebrews, not by the blood of human or animal sacrifices, right? By the blood, by his blood, right? So now we have this covenant that has a more sure, more eternal, right? Uh, I can't remember the the uh, superlative, uh, more excellent, right? Much more excellent now, right? Much more excellent quality than the previous covenant, right? Um, and Jesus is the, is the one who enacts that. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. Now, this that imagery is extremely revelatory. And this brings up, of course, a question as to the... Uh, 
number one, I think the connection between the writer of the Hebrews and the apostle John, right? Is there some sort of familiarity with this image that is spreading in the early church? Uh, is the, is the revelation of John and his apocalypse, is this earlier than what we uh, normally sort of credit it as? I think a lot of scholars sort of credit this as after 80, 85 AD seems really late to me in the history of the early church. Um, or is the writer of the Hebrews a little later than what we normally give credit to for the writer of the Hebrews, right? This brings up a lot of these sorts of questions as to the transmission and connection of these epistles, the transmission and connection of the uh, apostolic work, right? If Barnabas or whoever this is, right, some, I think some people say Apollos maybe wrote the, the letter to the Hebrews. I don't know about that, right? I, don't, I have questions about Apollos, but if, if it is Apollos, if it is Barnabas, do they know John and has John already had his revelation and is that revelation being transmitted to the Macedonian churches uh, do the Macedonian churches have a connection to Barnabas and his ministry to whatever the <clears throat> wherever or whatever this Hebrew group of people is I think most likely in some place around Jerusalem or J Judea some some church in that area obviously um, but the the fact that uh, the fact that uh, Barnabas or again whoever uh, says that identifies that Jesus is now the high priest, right? So he switches the image. If he does know about the revelation and if the revelation is, you know, contemporaneous with Barnabas's work, the image is switched here, right? The image is switched to a high priest rather than a lamb because the lamb in the revelation is the one who sort of ministers and works and is authorized on behalf of God, the father comes out with the scrolls. All these things are happening. The lamb is clearly the minister of God's salvation, of his gospel, of the, the care for the saints, of all these things in the revelation. Now here, the high priest is the one who has been enacted by God, authorized by God, ministers for God on behalf of God to the people, to the people of Israel, to the people of the church as a fulfillment of God's ministrations now that have been, uh, you know, sort of uh, concretized, even though in a divine heavenly way, but concretized in Jesus. So now his ministrations are sort of cosmic, eternal, incorruptible, no longer bound up by the shadows of the earthly things, right? I, I kind of, it's interesting to me that, that, um, I, I dabble in philosophy. And so when, when, uh, when the writer to the Hebrews starts talking about these shadows of earthly things, all I think about is Plato all over the place. But clearly, uh, what he's trying to communicate here isn't Platonic philosophy, but he's trying to communicate that there is this, uh, what Moses was given wasn't permanent. What Moses was given wasn't meant to be eternal. What Moses was given, and this is where getting, you know, sort of jumping ahead into the text. What Moses was given was a shadow of what had sort of pre-existed or existed before Moses even received the revelations of the tabernacle and the priesthood and all these things in the in the texts of Exodus. When you get into later sections of Exodus and in the in chapter thirty and beyond, you have um, Moses receiving all of these images about how the sacrificial system, the temple worship, tabernacle worship, the order of sacrifices, the prayers, the the you know priestly orders and prophetic orders and Aaron and all these things right they come out they spill out of Moses's interaction with God and the writer of the Hebrews Barnabas here he says um, oh Moses was receiving sort of this pattern right God was giving him sort of blueprints of what the heavenly realm and the ministry of Jesus were like and then says here go down right construct this stuff 
put these orders in place. We're going to give you a little snapshot of heaven on earth. It's going to look like the tabernacle for a time. The tabernacle is supposed to be made of skins. That stuff's going to pass away. You're going to have to keep patching it up. This is supposed to be an image of the fact that what you have is sort of this impermanent, shadowy, not really, you know, not completely there sort of thing. I'm going to, my presence is going to be there and then my presence is going to leave. You're going to have incense. It's going to be concrete. Then it's going to turn up in vapor, right? All this stuff we're going to have, you're going to have flesh and blood and then it's going to get burned up. All of these uh, practices, all of these ceremonies, all of these orders, right? The offerings, the priesthood, the priests serve for a little while and then they go away. The priests live and then the priests die. Moses is there, his face is shining. Then it's, then it's done, right? St. Paul talks about this. Like they covered these things up to show what was being taken away from everything, right? Paul talks about it this way. Barnabas talks about it here. This was shadowy stuff, right? Vapor. Uh, you know, this stuff was, it appeared concrete. It seemed permanent, but it's just going away. And the point of that is to communicate that there's something greater coming, right? There's something more permanent. There's something more excellent. There's something down the line. Don't fall in love with this stuff. Right? Don't fall in love with this location. Don't fall in love with this institution. Don't fall in love with this priest. Right? Be love God. Serve God. Right? Fear God. Don't don't fear these these uh, shadowy things that have no permanence in this earthly plane. God is at work wiping these things away. Right? He 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 demands their impermanence, so that when the permanent shows up. It, it makes everything else pale in comparison, right? This is really where St. Paul, or excuse me, right? Mixing it up here. Barnabas gets into this stuff um, uh, later, right? But Jesus is the one. The point is, again, that the focus is on Jesus as the one. He is the one who in the heavenly realm was the precursor, his ministry, his his office, his his service as the priest was actually a precursor to everything Moses received about everything the priests would ever do, right? He was already up in heaven ministering on behalf or for the people, for God's people, by God, executing what God wanted done for his people, executing what he had authority to execute, even in the heavenly realms, preparing for his sacrifice, if you wanted to talk about this in some of the other terms that are familiar to the Hebrews, preparing for his ultimate sacrifice or preparing to shed his blood, all these things he was preparing to do. And Moses received sort of a shadow of this for a, for a moment before Jesus enters the scene. So, Right. I mean, in, in thinking about preparing for his sacrifice, that's where this letter is headed in chapters 9 and 10, how yeah. Christ in his incarnation taking on a body that was for the sake of making this sacrifice to to do the things in the heavenly places as as is talked about here. So he's really setting the stage for what's coming next in the in the couple next couple chapters. Talk a little bit more about what that means that Jesus is a minister in the holy places. So again, it's like the ministry of Jesus is the the perfection, the completeness of the shadow of what the priests are doing on earth. Yeah, so, um, you know, this, the, we don't, you know, in confirmation class, right, we talk about the threefold office of the Christ, right? And we talk about the priest. Um, and obviously, when we talk about the priestly office, we, we, we run into Hebrews, we run into the Exodus, Levitical accounts, we talk about um, the office that's there. Now, um, when we talk about it, though, I think we do, I think we cut it short a little bit on, on the fact that um, the, 
the priestly order and this i think this is kind of uh, it's maybe a nuanced take but i don't i don't think a whole lot right like being a pastor isn't just about like chucking words onto a word document and getting up and talking right being a pastor isn't just about sort of sitting in your office for 40 hours a week being a pastor isn't uh, you know getting you know all nerded out by books there's there is a very important aspect to the pastoral office which has to which has to do with the application of the word of god to people in time in particular circumstances right this is this is exactly what luther talks about as a doctor of the law and a doctor of the gospel one of the most difficult things about being a pastor and this you know being a pastor it's our day job it's our it is our profession it is our duty to do this well right to practice the word of god well which means to rightly divide the law and the gospel and to execute it when it's called for this is not just a matter of blue and red on a sermon sheet right when we write out our manuscript and making sure that we have the same number of blue words as we have the same number of red words which is something i learned in my hom one class right that's what balanced long gospel means that's not what balanced long gospel means all right i have learned so much more about the ministry of the pastoral office and the ministry of the word that uh that it is a that it is a lifelong vocation of the pastor to know when and where to apply a word that is going to kill and a word that is going to make alive and so also for the priests right the priests were not simply a group of people who were sort of these automatons that mumbled jargon in the temple in order to you know keep the you know, the place, the lights on, right? Or whatever you want to talk about it. They were not just there to, uh, for the job. Now I'm sure there were some, just like there's some pastors that are only in it for a paycheck, right? That's, I think that's lame, but you know, there's priests that were like that too. But the main issue of being a priest is that the priest was to be a minister to the people of God on behalf of, and in the likeness of the word of God. That means the ministry of the word was preeminent before the institution of the tabernacle and the actual ministry, right? Uh, this has been a desire of God in creation uh, for since the beginning of the creation that the ministry of the word would be this uh, major element to the life of creation, that the life of that the life of the creation and the life in particular of the people of God would not make sense. It wouldn't be clear. It wouldn't be fulfilled unless God was in the midst of his people talking to them. Now, uh, in the days of Moses, that talk, the God talk, the, the, the uh, ministry of the word, the preaching of the word to the people was executed primarily, or we, we could say, you know, uh, prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament, the word of God, the ministry of the word was executed in all three of those offices in varying places and times, right? David is a minister of the word. Isaiah, we have Jeremiah here, clearly a minister of the word. You have the priests in the Old Testament. We have Melchizedek, clearly a minister of the word, right? But this ministry is, is the ministry of the word, right? It is a ministry of the gospel. And uh, it's not just... Um, uh, what is the right word here? It is not dead. It is not boring, right? It is, It is uh, to a certain extent, it is boring and predictable. But uh, the ministry of the word uh, and the preaching of the word to God's people 
is the thing that creates that it kills and it makes alive right and that is not um that is not to be taken lightly it is not uh it is not to be handled uh it is not to be handled as if it isn't a living thing you know um more pastors i think you know we all we all need to take it seriously right but more pastors need to deep dive into this it's like uh, you know i i hate going to a doctor who is clearly bored with his profession and believes that he can just uh you know regurgitate jargon from some sort of a manual right like from from the uh physician's desk desk reference guide and he's just gonna like read right out of it line by line as if you know that's why i'm there right now i'm gonna take the medicine okay fine uh it's gonna be a good diagnosis great but uh there's something lacking there right there's something that's clearly communicating to me that this guy doesn't really care about his profession and not simply his profession but connecting to the people upon whom he is been sent and authorized to practice this profession and similarly this is this is the priestly thing clearly jesus was uh imminently passionate about his ministry to the people clearly jesus uh hated it when his apostles were apathetic clearly jesus did not want the ministry of the word to simply be like reading out of the physician's desk reference guide uh the ministry of the word is meant to uh bring dead things to life right? That's, that's clearly what the ministry of word is enacted to do. And this is clear. Let's, uh, Pastor Belts, let's, let's pick that up more on the other side of the break. We're, we're coming up here on a break. So let's go ahead and take that break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sam Belts this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 23rd. We're studying Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor Sam Belts. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, prior to the break, we were talking about the ministry of the Word that Jesus executed, and I think we would say still executes. Uh, keep that conversation going for us. Yeah, so uh, again, right, um, Jesus wants the ministry of the Word as it is still going right he authorizes men he authorizes his church and within the church men to maintain the ministry of this word and to do it the right way right the right way again what, what we're talking about isn't just to try to you know balance out red and blue words on a page and act like we've got it all sorted out but it's to actually apply the word of god to god's people in time for their to, to kill and make alive right that's that's it those are the two the two functions of that word. Now, um, 
to connect this back to the Hebrews writing so that we're not just getting lost in, in the discussion of the office of the ministry, which would be an excellent, right? Talk about another radio show and podcast that we should start for, uh, uh, you know, what KFUO, right? The church and ministry podcast, something like that. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the ministry of the word as it still currently takes place, right? We're, we're, of course, like the writer of the Hebrews is, we are pointing to the fulfillment of all God has done in Jesus of Nazareth, where we are, uh, we are fixed, we are obsessed as Christians with everything that God accomplished and completed in Jesus. This is, this is where the writer of the Hebrews is, right? He is, again, going head over heels to preach and proclaim the fullness of what God has done to, in Jesus, especially for the Hebrew people, right? Especially as he, as Jesus was a Hebrew, as he's in the order of Melchizedek, as he came, as he was, as all of his ministry was given here as a shadow of what would be more perfect, right? So Jesus is this pre pretext for the ministry of Moses and the fulfillment of the ministry of Moses. And where do we stand as Christians, right? We stand on the other side of the fulfillment of everything Moses had as the pretext, everything that Moses had as the shadow, which uh, which uh, Barnabas talks about in in verse five of our passage, right? All the tabernacle, all the orders, the priests, all the things, all served as sort of the shadow, copy, image, right, metaphor, analogy to what was taking place in the heavens already before Moses had even received it. Now we stand on the other side of that, right? We stand looking back at everything that God accomplished in Jesus, we look back at how he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He has fulfilled all of the promises. He has fulfilled all of the aspects of the Old Testament orders uh, of the tabernacle, of the temple, of the sacrifices, of the incense, of everything, right? All the things see their completion in Jesus Christ. And now we stand in line to receive all of that fulfillment. But now, uh, you know, now we, uh, moving into these later parts of chapter 8 and then into the Jeremiah passage, right? Now we stand uh, with the, we stand in the place that Jeremiah talked about, how there is now this new and better covenant, right? The shadow has passed away, right? The shadow is gone. Now we have the image, right? Now we have the concrete expression. Now we have the certainty in Jesus Christ our Lord, Right? The, the writer of the Hebrews puts the Jeremiah passage in there, identifies that what was given in Moses was this shadow, right? Which is in line with all of these other things that both Jesus and St. Paul talk about in relation to the Pharisees and in relation to the Hebrews in their own places, right? Like, I think it's in the second Corinthians where, uh, and I can't remember the chapter and verse now, uh, where, where St. Paul really destroys the Hebrews that he's dealing with in the Corinthian congregation. And he says, Moses had a ministry of death. We are interested in the ministry of life and reconciliation, right? That is such a clear and distinctive dichotomy that St. Paul asserts in that place that draws a sharp line between what Moses was uh, authorized to do and now what the apostles and the church are authorized to do, right? Jesus, in the, uh, especially the Gospel of John, but in several places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some of the main arguments that Jesus gets into with the Pharisees are over the place of Moses in the life of Israel and how Jesus has now, how he has come, and he is greater than Moses, right? Like these, these assertions of, uh, of authority, of superior authority, of superior quality, of superior excellence, these are shot through in the New Testament from Jesus, from Paul, from, you know, Apollos or Barnabas here. And um, 
this should really get our grab our attention as Christians, right? Um, how is it that we how is it that we get to stand in line with the people of Israel? How is it that we get to receive what the people of Israel what was theirs by right? How do how do we uh, now stand uh, in in relation to all of this work and all of this history and all of these patriarchs and all of this stuff that God gave? Right? I didn't you know the Germanic people didn't receive the temple, right? The Russian people didn't, right? I'm German and Russian, right? The, the Slavs didn't, the Scandinavians didn't. Like we weren't the people that God chose out of the mess of the Tower of Babel to deposit the riches of his eternal kingdom. That was the Hebrew people. How is it that we get into this? We get into this by faith in Jesus, right? This is what the this is what is being concretely expressed in he in the Jeremiah passage that the writer of the Hebrews includes here at the tail end of our section when he starts talking about the days that are coming when the law of God is going to be written on the hearts. Um, it's not like those days haven't been around, right? We, we clearly have this in the Old Testament, in the patriarchs, in David, right? In, in places where uh, the law of God, this is why Abraham was justified by faith. Clearly, the, the law of God has been written on the hearts of man since the creation. But what is the writer, what is Jeremiah getting at? And what is the writer of the Hebrews getting at by including this here? What he's including uh, here is that in the Old Testament, right, in the days of Moses, in the days of Melchizedek, in all of these times, these shadowy things, these things that were here and then gone, these things that were clearly symbols of impermanence, it's how, how much can we truly believe in these impermanent things, right? This is sort of this really strong rhetorical device that the writer of the Hebrews is using here. And, and... He's uh, also identifying, very importantly, a new covenant in relation to an old covenant. And that when the new covenant comes, the old covenant is just going to be, it's not going to be obsolete, right? We're still going to, it's still going to be there, or it's not going to be destroyed to a certain extent, but it's definitely going to be shown for how weak and old it is, right? It's definitely going to be something that we're like, man, why did we, why did we, what was that about, right? How, how did we get so wrapped up in that stuff with this new thing that's here, right? Um, you know, I've been, I've, uh, I did a confirmation retreat a couple of, uh, a couple of, uh, it's like a week ago now, right? And uh, I, I talked to the kids about this relationship between new and old things. And I talked about it in terms of, uh, right, uh, being, uh, how do we respond to this invitation and inclusion into the kingdom of God that comes to us by Jesus, right? Comes to us in Jesus in our baptisms. We receive it in, in faith and all these sorts of things. And I talked about it as like, yeah, I, I, I laid out this comparison. I was like, oh, kids, what if Taylor Swift invited you to her wedding with Travis Kelsey? And all these girls like, oh my gosh, if Taylor Swift invited me to come to her wedding with Travis Kelsey, this would be the most amazing thing. I'd have to get a new dress and I'd have to do my hair and I have to get new shoes. And oh my gosh, I don't know what I would do. I, and they were like breathless. They were these, these, these poor preteen, early teen girls were breathless at the idea of getting invited to Taylor Swift's, you know, wedding with Travis Kelsey. And then I said, oh my gosh. How much more excellent is it to be invited to God's house on a regular basis to commune with the eternal king of all the creation? And they all kind of were like, oh, you know, they all kind of slumped, right? 
they were like, uh, it, you know, they clearly weren't as breathless with the prospect of communing and receiving the ministries of the eternal word of God that's very close to them, right? Now, this is, of course, the response of every sinner, every boring and predictable sinner, right? The, the people of Israel are, you know, we're in, you know, when we're talking about uh, Jeremiah, right, we're not, not super far removed, historically speaking, from Moses, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a ways, right? But uh, whatever, right? It's a little bit of a ways. But they still remembered, probably with some excitement, the, the, res, the rescue that God enacted upon them in, in, uh, uh, from Egypt into the Holy Land. But then those, those people of Israel were boring and predictable. And you get a week later after the Sinai covenant, and they're like, man, cucumbers really sound good. Let's, let's get out of here, right? We, God, this God just brought us out here to die. Clearly the breathlessness of everything that God had done for them to rescue them from sin, death, and the devil from the hands of Egypt and genocide, right? It fades quickly, right? Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, I, you know, wherever you fall on Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, sooner or later, they're not going to be here. Right. Like they're going to they're just not going to be here. And then what are we going to do? Who are we going to be breathless about later? What the writer of the Hebrews and Jeremiah are attempting to do here is to proclaim the gospel to the people of of the church. Right. To Jeremiah in his day to Israel, the writer of the Hebrews to his day to the church so that the people would again be caught up and breathless as to the lengths that God has gone in Jesus, not, you know, and to the lengths that God has gone in Jesus, even before the foundations of the world to rescue his people and all of creation Mm -hmm. from everything that would destroy them, right. From everything that would be their ruin. And to point out again, how good God has been, how good the father has been in establishing this on earth for the benefit of, of people like you and me. Right. This, this should leave this. I mean, I say should this, this should, if anything should right in our lives, this should inspire our hearts, leave us breathless. This should, this should steal our affections. This should unite our passions. This message, this gift, this gospel, this place, everything that God has done in Jesus should direct our right. Should direct our hearts like the care bear stare straight to the cross. Right straight up there all attention all power all influence all all authority everything should be up there and that's exactly what the writer of the hebrews is intending to do because the eyes of the hebrew christians have started to wander right the eyes of the hebrew christians have started to wander like maybe there's maybe there's a maybe there's a more better priestly figure right maybe maybe that jesus guy Maybe there's something more that he, you know, maybe he's not as great, right? Maybe he didn't really do everything we needed him to do as a Jewish people, right? Like all these things have probably started to come up, right? You know, and the, and again, the writer of the Hebrews and, and in this section and, and subsequently in every aspect of the writing to the Hebrews, he is pushing Jesus forward so that the people in that day would not have any questions as to what God has done in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God has given them a new covenant, right? This is so this is all of the Jeremiah passage. And this new covenant in the house of Israel and in the house of Judah is not like the covenant that that the God of Israel made with the patriarchs, which is an amazing statement. That is an amazingly that is an astounding statement. And I would have to imagine if you were a Hebrew person in the days of Jeremiah, right, in, in 580 AD or 580 BC, 560 BC, whenever you're hearing 
Jeremiah talk to you and you hear about the fact that a covenant is coming that is greater than the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is greater than the covenant of Moses, right? If you hear that sort of thing, you're going, man, what could that possibly be? When, when is that going to get here? Because I'll take that, right? This covenant is, you know, this covenant is great and all, but something greater, a new covenant that's better, a new covenant that has, that is more excellent than what our fathers gave us, right? I'll take that thing. Um, because, uh, and because the, the old covenant, as it says, the old covenant wasn't continued, right? They did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, right? Declares the Lord. This covenant was so weak that the people could easily tread over it, right? That's how, that's how, uh, that's how God inspired Jeremiah to talk about the covenant that he was a part of and the new covenant that he would not get to taste, right? That there was a, that the old covenant that Jeremiah was standing in was so weak that people could easily walk over it, right? Now, this is going to be in comparison, of course, to the covenant and the rock that is Jesus Christ, right? The, the most quoted, uh, the most quoted piece of New Testament scripture is, what do you, what do you make of this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. And a stumbling block and they will be crushed and all that sort of stuff, right? This is going to be this unmistakable cornerstone that, that is given to the people of Israel as the foundation for this new temple, right? Or this new, this new structure. And it's going to be in Jesus and it's going to crush the old, right? The old has no share in the new, right? This is this, uh, you know, devastatingly clear proclamation that Jeremiah is making here. It sounds a lot like Jesus and a lot of what he teaches in the New Testament stuff too. Yeah, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. That just doesn't, that doesn't work out. You can't put unshrunk cloth on a, you can't put new cloth on a, on an old patch, right? Like that's just going to rip it apart. New stuff for new, you know, new wine, new wineskins. Um, the new stuff is, is, is blowing up the old stuff, right? The new stuff is, it's just not compatible with the old. And so we have that coming out really, really clearly here. Um, uh, in the Jeremiah passage, which is being utilized by Barnabas in the letter to the Hebrews only to point out everything that he has already talked about in the in chapter seven and eight and in chapter six and five, right? How Jesus is just continuously identified as the fulfillment, as the keeper, as the, as the, the, uh, inaugurator as the authorizer of this new covenant now right he is he has fulfilled all of the priestly offices in the order of Melchizedek and now the seal right the seal and stamp of his uh of his authority of his office is that this new covenant is coming about right and now and we're going to move into you know as you mentioned earlier in chapters 9 and 10 what is the content and quality of this seal what is what is the actual thing that is the signature of blood on this will and testament, this new covenant, right? That's that's nine and ten, right? Uh, we we start seeing the the substitutionary atonement, the paschal nature of Jesus's, uh, you know, uh, atoning sacrifice, right? All this stuff starts coming out really clearly, and it has to, right? It has to, it has to, because this just again further drives what uh, Barnabas is intending to drive in the entirety of this of this text, which is that 
Jesus is it. He is it. He is all we need. He is the rock. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the temple. All this stuff was all shadows and vapor. And then Jesus shows up and it's concrete and sure, right? Uh, the new covenant here from Jeremiah is, of course, one that is that is uh, ratified by the blood of Jesus, which you'll talk about in subsequent episodes. But is also uh, it is also that uh, very thing... Um, that uh, that it is uh, it is rooted in faithfulness and it is immistakable, right? It is a rock that is immovable. It is the base. It is the foundation. It is the thing that is not vapor and smoke. It is the thing you stub your toe on. It's the thing you can't. You just can't get around it, right? And it's uh, it's uh, in verses ten especially. I will put my law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, right? So uh, this is how unmistakable this new covenant is, is that nobody even needs to talk about it anymore. We don't even need, we don't need to teach people about it. It is so obvious. It is so clear. It is so huge that you're an idiot if you can't figure this out. Like everybody knows it. The greatest to the least. They, there's no way of mistaking this, right? And it is, it is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom of faith. It is a kingdom of the law of God. Now, the law of God here, yes, of course, it's the moral codex, but it is the entire testimony and testament of God's activity in creation, most notably in the people of Israel, as it culminates in Jesus Christ, right? Uh, here, we find out God has always wanted a people for himself. He has always wanted a people to be his treasured possession. The old covenant wasn't good enough to, to secure that for, for God. Now the new covenant has come in Jesus Christ, ratified by his blood, and that is what makes a people for God. It is, those are the marks of the church. Those are the marks of the people. It's not circumcision anymore. It's not the temple. It's only Jesus, right? That is it. Yeah. It's his blood. It's his word. It's, his, it's baptism. That's the marks. That's where we know the covenant is. That's how we know who's in. It is only those things that are the clarity and the permanence that we need. And that's the, that's the stumbling stone for everyone else, right? For all people. Hmm. So thinking about the way that the new covenant surpasses the old, fulfills the old, makes the old one vanish away, become obsolete, and this reality that the old covenant that Moses received was intended to point toward this heavenly reality— as you as you said early on, this is the letter that is written for us as Christians. It's not just written to, to people then, it's written to us. And so thinking about the way that we still experience that heavenly reality that's going on with Jesus as our minister in the heavenly places, and thinking about the way that, that sinners do, and, and myself included, get bored with the things of God and think, oh, I'm going to church again, preaching a sermon again, same old, same old. I think this this reality of the the heavenly ministry of Jesus that and you brought up the book of Revelation which I think gives us the picture that when we come to the divine service you know we are for a moment joining that heavenly worship that's always going on I I think that these realities again that are discussed here in Hebrews 8 hopefully begin to amplify our excitement and our joy at receiving the gifts of God at receiving this new covenant that that is it this is everything and we experience it in part now and we will experience it in fullness when our lord returns 
I really think that should help amplify our sense of excitement and joy as Christians. Now we've got about three minutes here, Pastor Belts. Maybe just just talk about that a little bit as we as we wrap up this morning. Yeah. So I think this is really I think this is really good. I think this is really important. Um, now that now I always talk about this in two ways, right? Um, there's there is a boring predictability to the divine service, and that boring predictability is beautiful. Right. There's a boring predictability to what takes place in church, and that boring predictability is beautiful. The only reason that sinners believe that they need something exciting is because they've been trapped by the lie that uh, that they are exciting, right? That that they need something exciting to feed their exciting soul, right? Sinners, people in general, are boring and predictable, right? This world is boring and predictable. The ch- why why would we why on God's earth would we expect God to be anything but boring and predictable? right? Uh, he presents us with his word. We are either in line with that word by God's grace or we're out of line with it, which is more often the case. And then he brings us back into line in it by the usual methods, which he's been using for generations, for millennia, right? Oh, uh, where are you? I was afraid. Why were you afraid? We did something we weren't supposed to. Why did you do that? We don't know, right? Um, and then, he, you know, like with Adam and Eve, the, the absolution and confession are a little bit more nitty gritty. But, you know, he works with his word throughout time. Now, to, to your point, though, which goes back to something we were talking about earlier, um, the divine service has a lot of excitement in it, right? It does. Uh, the services of the church are intended to communicate and are a heavenly. Uh, I always talk about uh, the, the service of the church, the church itself is like an embassy and an outpost of the kingdom of God on earth. And we get a taste, a glimpse, a, a portion of this heavenly ministry, of this heavenly, uh, you know, t- revelation uh, in church on Sundays. There's also something to, like, that the, that uh, pastors and congregations should work in time to make our services and churches resemble that stuff too. Right, like I love our hymn book, but some of the hymns aren't hymns that are probably you know the the anthems of heaven that are being sung. Right, I'm not saying you can't use them. Right, you should use them, but maybe those aren't the ones you sing. You know, fifty out of the fifty-two weeks of the year. Right, maybe we go through as pastors and we figure out those hymns that are big anthems. Right, maybe you know this is of course difficult. Right. Um, maybe some of our musicians need to practice a little bit more, right? Maybe as congregations, we need to look at our worship service space, right? We need to look at our sanctuaries, our naves. We need to look at the places where we're receiving the divine body and blood of Jesus Christ and be like, should we really, you know, have this in a place where the lacquer is falling off of the walls into the common cup when this is taking place? Maybe we should do some work here. Why are there cracks in the drywall? What, what could be better about this place? Right. Let's let's, um, you know, the inspiration of the text of scriptures and the inspiration of the spirit as he works through the word of God should have us looking at the places where we say this is the divine outpost of the heavenly kingdom and go, "Mm, man, how can we make this resemble what it is a shadow of? Right. So like, you know, there I, I lament the days when the majority of our income as as Americans and as people went into the church buildings. Right. There are these great old cathedrals in the middle of Kansas that people spent all of their money in erecting these limestone cathedrals in the middle of Kansas because they wanted everybody in Kansas to be able to see that there was a church 
from at least 10 to 15 miles away, right? They wanted everybody to see the steeple. They wanted everybody to be able to know where to go. They wanted all the wagons and all the horses pointed in the same direction, right? I love the church. I wish uh, and I hope and I pray that with through Bible studies like this, through the preaching of pastors, through the animation and the inspiration, and the passion of pastors, that our lay people in our congregations might become increasingly zealous, right? There, there is a there is a prayer in the text of scripture for the zealousness of the house of the Lord, right? For the excitement and the zeal of the of the people of God to come into the house and want to receive everything that is there, but also want to increase the beauty and the passion and the excitement and the zeal of all who might come into it, right? I think that means louder music, right? I, I play the organ loud, right? We, you know, we should sing more. We should sing bigger, right? Men need to sing bigger, right? We actually would have big, big voices in this. Like, that's why the organ needs to be loud, right? People sing up to the organ. People sing up to loud voices, right? All that sort of stuff, right? Needs to go. So we are in the middle of a of the need for a church, for our congregations to resemble and emulate the beauty of the heavenly realm. I think that's, that's a great point. Pastor Sam Belts is pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. He's helping us today to study Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Belts, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, thanks so much, Tim. It's an honor. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, the high priest that we have always needed. He is our heavenly minister, and now in the divine service, we join in that heavenly worship, waiting that day when we will be there in person in the resurrection of the dead. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews 8, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.